So today we come to the fourth part of our series on reconsidering the future of Israel. And as I always do at the beginning of these studies to remind you that giving credit where it's due, <clears throat> Dr. James B. Jordan wrote an essay of about 30 pages on this same topic some years ago, and I am using this that material as a basis for what I'm presenting to you. So he gets all the credit and none of the blame for this procedure. Now we have been talking about the background before we go into a study of Romans 9 to 11 about who the Jews were in the days of Jesus and earlier and who the Jews are today and the general understanding of the preterist interpretation of the New Testament. So getting now specifically toward Romans 9 through 11, we need to bear in mind some more background matters that frequently are overlooked because we don't always come at these studies with a firm understanding of the older covenant. I like to put it this way, Paul and the apostles and the writers of the New Testament, they hadn't been reading John Piper and R.C. Sproul and whoever else. Their knowledge was purely based on the Older Testament. So we know that God called Abraham to be a priest to the nations right after what happened at the Tower of Babel. And those two events are very intimately connected. Uh, in Genesis 11:4, we read that the people of the land said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the whole face of the earth. And then in Genesis 12, 2, and, and by the way, we know what happened. The Lord confused the languages and scattered the people because they were trying to be united on their own terms. It was a humanistic, statist endeavor. But in Genesis 12, 2, in the following chapter and after the time of, tower, of the Tower of Babel, we read him, the Lord speaking to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So this is the opposite of what happened at Babel. So after the call of Abraham, there were two distinct types of believers. Notice that word I'm using, believers in the world. There were the Hebrews, and then there were Gentile believers who were Noahic believers. They were uh, Noahide, I think is the current term that many of the Jews use to describe Gentiles who follow the basic law of the time of Noah. But that too was not God's original purpose. And during the Old Covenant, there were many Gentile believers who, they were believers, but they did not become Israelites. There was really no reason why a Gentile believer should become an Israelite, which in the case of the men meant they had to be circumcised, unless there was some specific calling that they needed to do that. No, as a matter of fact, we know from, say, for example, Numbers chapter 15, that there were God-fearing Gentiles who had full access to the tabernacle. Let me just give you a selection here from Numbers 15, beginning at verse 12. As many as you offer, so shall you do with each one, as many as there are. Every native Israelite, notice that, shall do these things in this way, in offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma. And notice, if a stranger is sojourning with you, meaning a non-Israelite, a Gentile believer, or anyone who is living permanently among you, and he wishes to offer food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, he shall do as you do. With the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations. You and the non-Israelite believer, the sojourner, shall be alike before the Lord. So, from the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul has been concerned about that division. And so, we read in several of his epistles a reference to the, the great mystery, the mystery of godliness. And, and the burden of that mystery is that in the new covenant age, that division between believing Jew and believing Gentile no longer exists. All believers are one in Christ. 
There's no longer, and this is a blockbuster, so listen, there's no longer any such thing as a Jew. And since Gentiles are defined in relationship to what is a Jew, there's no longer any such thing as a Gentile either. So how could that be? Well, it's been changed. If there's no longer a Jew in the biblical sense and no longer a Gentile, therefore, what is there? Well, there are Christians and non-Christians. And frankly, I never cease to be dumbfounded at Christian believers, even who are supposed to have the right theology, who were concerned about this. This is clearly what Scripture teaches. Although that division between believing Jew and believing Gentile was judicially overcome at the resurrection of Jesus, it was not actually overcome until later. And the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile as one new man in Christ, that had a point of inception at Pentecost, and then the culmination was in the destruction of the temple and the erasing of the Old Covenant era in A.D. 70. The calling of Israel all along was to minister God's promises to the Gentiles, and that is what Abraham was called to do, and throughout his life we saw him doing that. We know that Joseph did the same thing. Moses married an Ethiopian. Samson offered marriage to a Philistine. David converted the Philistine city of Gath. Elijah went to a Gentile widow. And Elisha cured a Gentile soldier of leprosy. So, it's no surprise that when Jesus comes on the scene, as the true Israelite, Jesus is the true Israel, then he does what? He begins ministering to Gentiles. Now, you notice, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 30, Jesus is speaking in the synagogue, and he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and uh, he tells them in verse 21, that the Jews who are assembled in the synagogue, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and all spoke well of him. They said, is this not Joseph's son? And then notice this, he says to them, <clears throat> truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came on the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And notice what happens next. When they heard those things, that is the Jews in the synagogue, all of them were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town. So what was it that got, some, that got them so enraged? Because he was referring to Gentiles having become part of the covenant or part of the, the, um, the, the group of people who would be included in the covenant. Now we know from Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and I'm going to compress this a little bit, but it's in verses 5 through 11. You remember um, Jews from all over the empire had come to Jerusalem on the great feast on the day of Pentecost. And the apostles began prophesying and preaching. And what happened? Uh, the Jews were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these all speaking who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? And then there follows this list. Now notice this list, beginning at Acts 2.9. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, that would be believing Gentiles, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And we're all familiar with that story, but have you ever thought about the fact that there's one language group not mentioned in that list? Hebrew. 
Hebrew was not a language being spoken by these men. So the kingdom message was being preached in every language except Hebrew, and that was a sign that the true Israel was going about his priestly work as well. And this was also a sign, however, that the Tower of Babel was being overcome, and that there was no longer that curse. There was no longer any need for a priestly nation of Israel. Now, in Isaiah 28, verse 11, the prophet Isaiah speaking to the Jews says, The Lord will speak to these people. He will mock them by speaking in a foreign language. Another translation, So now God will have to speak to his people through foreign oppressors who speak a strange language. Now, what's interesting, if you keep that in the background, when we come to 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is speaking about those who talk in tongues in the church. And notice in 1 Corinthians 14, 21, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So Paul rebukes the Corinthians, and he calls them to be mature in their thinking and understanding, and uh, to be infants and inexperienced in wickedness. But the clear implication is that their behavior was the opposite of those things. So where a people are perverse, the words of Isaiah 28 are true of them. And what Isaiah says is that no matter how God speaks to an evil group of people, they will not hear him. He may use tongues and other languages, alien peoples, but they will not hear. They are determined not to. And failure to hear the word of God is a moral failure. It is a matter of choice whereby evil is preferred and God is rejected by fallen men. So what that means in this case, is speaking in tongues was a sign to Israel that her history was over because her purpose had been accomplished by the true Israel, Christ Jesus. Now, it was still necessary, however, for believing Jew and believing Gentile to be reunited or to be united as one people in Christ. And the events leading up to A.D. 70 brought about the end of the Jewish world by the judgment on Jerusalem. It brought about the filling up of both Gentile and Israel, and it ended in the harvest of the fulfilled Gentile and Jewish believers. And the end result of that process was that after A.D. 70, that division no longer existed. And when the Lord brought judgment against the Tower of Babel, it was a manifestation, his curse of death upon them, so that, and the presence of the division between Jew and Gentile in the world was a reminder of that death sentence and God's scattering of Israel at the exile. And his regathering at the restoration is also a picture of death and resurrection. I invite you to read in Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 22 and Ezekiel 37, and especially in Ezekiel 37, we read of the division in this case between Judah and Ephraim and the being pictured as two sticks and how the Lord says, um, behold, this is Ezekiel 37, 21, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land and on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be over them, and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. So, this regathering of Israel over, overcame that division between the two halves of Ephraim and um, Judah. And that, then, is a type, a picture, of the future union between believing Jew and believing Gentile. After the Tower of Babel, it was God's will for those two to be separate after Babel but it was God's action that reunited them after the cross. And so the purpose of the kingdom message is not simply individual salvation, but also 
cosmic salvation. Uh, the, the ruined social orders of humanity are, are to be restored and being restored. The, the reuniting of believing Jew and believing Gentile into one body undoes the death sentence that was pronounced on the Tower of Babel. And so it is a sociopolitical resurrection. And that resurrection occurred in A.D. 70 as an outworking of the resurrection of Jesus in A.D. 30. And that sociopolitical resurrection in A.D. 70 is a foretaste of the eventual physical resurrection of all believers at the Last Judgment. And after A.D. 70, the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom, is no more one of reconciliation between believing Jew and believing Gentile, because that reconciliation has been accomplished once and forever. So that now, the mission of the church is to call all people into herself and to become reconciled to God. All right, with that bit of background, we will proceed next time to launch into a more detailed study of what Paul is talking about in Romans 9, 10, and 11, about all Israel being brought in, uh, brought into the covenant, and the timing of that, which I've been suggesting to you as a part of this larger AD 30 to AD 70 time frame. Let me pause and see if you have any questions.